Take your Bibles, turn to Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, if you will. We'll have a shorter message than usual because of the observance of the Lord's table. We don't do this every month, but we do like to do it several times a year, have the observance of the Lord's table on Sunday morning, have a number of people that are not able to drive uh, and be here on Sunday evening. We want them to be able to just participate in this family ordinance, the ordinance God has given to the church. I'm not continuing in my series on the uh, parables of Jesus. Lord willing, we'll uh, finish very soon on that, but today I'll be preaching a message devoted to the suffering of Jesus and actually His initial suffering, as it were, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Appreciate our orchestra helping this morning. Gave the choir a little break, but the orchestra added so much to the service. Thank you for your ministry. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, if you'll look on and read uh, as I read aloud, verse 39. And he, that is Jesus, came out and went as he was wont, or he was accustomed to the Mount of Olives. Evidently, Jesus retreated to the Mount of Olives many times to pray. And his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast, and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. I don't normally pray at the beginning of a message, but I feel I should. Today, would you bow with me? Father, even as the powers of darkness were present in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus agonized in prayer, I know that the powers of darkness are present this morning in this room, and we plead the blood of Jesus over them. Every effort of the wicked one to subvert, to distract, to take the seed that is sown in hearts and snatch it away. I pray that we will hear on purpose what the Spirit has to say to the church and that we'll be obedient hearers of the Word not, and, and doers, not hearers only. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We have been taught by our Lord to pray, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I've been more impressed with the Lord's Prayer, the so-called Lord's Prayer, in recent months than ever in my life. I find myself praying it every day, not just as a ritual. That's the problem. We just do it as mechanically. doesn't do us any good. But Jesus commanded us to pray it. I hope we do it meaningfully, thoughtfully, sincerely, devoutly, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So that means that God's will is perfectly done in heaven. 
Have you ever thought about that? There are no black sheep in heaven. There are no fallen angels in heaven. There are no mutant disciples in heaven. Everything that happens in heaven is perfect. And that means what the glorified Lamb does upon the throne is perfect. There's no exception. He is perfectly interceding for us. And we have a glimpse of His true work in what is the true Lord's Prayer. I won't have you turn there. That's in John chapter 17. That's the great high priestly prayer of Christ. And it's interesting, in that prayer, among other things that He asked God for, He says, Father, I will. I will. I will that they whom thou hast given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. In the high priestly prayer, here's here's what I'm coming to, Jesus prays, I will. But here in Gethsemane, as we just read, he prays, Father, not as I will, not my will. Why the difference? Please don't miss this. It's so important. It's so fundamental to the rest of the message. In Gethsemane, as Jesus agonized in the garden, He did so as the sacrificial lamb, the obedient son. In heaven, He is the exalted Lord, our high priest, unto whom all power has been given in heaven and in earth. So He prays the prayer of submission in Gethsemane, And really, it precedes the prayer of faith. You say, well, wait a minute. When Jesus prayed John 17, that was before He agonized in the garden. Good observation. Although John 17, in order of time, precedes the prayer in the garden, spiritually, it's reversed. Jesus prayed, not my will that he might be able to pray on the throne, now, Father, I will. If we really get a hold of it, we'll all be shouting amen. We are on holy ground this morning. If you don't take your physical shoes off, I sure hope you take your spiritual ones off. This is so profound and so rich. It was in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus underwent the supreme crisis of His life. Some of you have been to Israel, as my wife and I have twice. Almost invariably, you, you will have a guide who will show you an olive press. The word Gethsemane means olive press. The olive in Israel, and for many years, has, been, has such a versatility of uses, it's so valuable for food, for medicine, in vo- different vocations. Olive press, olive oil is valuable, but it had to be cold press. What a beautiful symbol for what happened to Jesus in the garden. He was pressed beyond measure. 
so much so that he sweat great drops of blood. Let me ask you, what transpired among those gnarled olive trees that night? If those trees could talk, and by the way, if you go over there and see them, some of them have been there for almost 2,000 years, and in all likelihood, what were shoots, when little green shoots that, that witness Jesus praying are now trees standing in that garden. If those trees could talk, what would they say? Whatever it was, it still has profound significance for us two millennia later. So with the time remaining, I want to talk about that under three headings. The cup, the prayer, and the rebuke. That's what's really here in this particular passage. The cup. What was the cup? I've dealt with this several times over my 22 years as pastor here. Over 22 years as pastor, observing the Lord's table approximately once every month, I've preached hundreds of messages for this kind of observance. So we've often talked about what the cup was. You've heard me say some of these things before, but I hope you won't resent my saying them again. I want to stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance. And by the way, this is a time of remembrance. Amen? What did Jesus say? This do in remembrance of me. What was this cup that looms so big before Jesus? Well, first of all, let me tell you what it was not. Because there's a lot of confusion here. Some good and godly men have missed it, in my humble opinion. And I mean that sincerely. I, I stand on their shoulders. I respect them highly. But there's a lot of confusion. What it was not. This cup was not the dread of physical death. It was not the dread of physical death. There are proponents of this view, and, and even if they say that that's what they think this is, that Jesus dreaded physical death, they would be quick to add that they didn't think Jesus feared weakness and pain. After all, He touched lepers, He touched dead corpses. Yet they wrongly assume that Jesus was terrified at the thought of death, and they reason this, they say, He was a man, yes, He was God, but He was a man, and as a man, He had that survival instinct that all men have. But it is clear from the Word of God, it's clear from the New Testament, Jesus was not afraid of physical death. He knew that He was going to die, and He accepted it as the Father's will. When Peter tried to turn Him aside from going to Jerusalem to suffer and die, when Jesus announced it, that He would be crucified there, when Peter tried to turn Him aside, Jesus rebuked Him. He said, Get thee behind me, Satan. Do you think that other martyrs for Christ down through the ages who have been given the grace to go to the gallows or to the stake or to the guillotine triumphantly, you think they could do that but their master would cower when he died the death that was prophesied? That's unthinkable. Oh no, Jesus set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem knowing exactly what would happen there, what would befall him at the hands of wicked men. I do not believe the cup was the fear of physical death. 
Secondly, going a little bit further, I do not believe that the cup was the attack of Satan. And here's where I would part company with more men than who would agree with the first thing, the, the dread of physical death. There are those who would disagree with the idea that Jesus dreaded physical death, but they do believe that Jesus feared dying at the hands of Satan. And therefore, he wanted to die the death of the cross according to the Scriptures, and he was afraid of dying prematurely. People who subscribe to this view cite how Satan tried to kill Jesus as a baby through Herod. They talk about how the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness before his earthly ministry started, tempting him to cast himself down from that high pinnacle of the temple, which would have been certain death unless the angels bore him up, which would have been a sin of presumption on the part of Jesus. Let me acknowledge that Satan was there in the garden, to be sure. He was the tempter, and I'll say more about that in a moment. Jesus alluded to that as he left the garden and surrendered himself to the band that Judas uh, had gotten by his betrayal to come and arrest Jesus. If you look at verse 53 of, 20, of chapter 22, verse 53, when I was daily with you in the temple, Jesus said, you stretch forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Yes, I think Satan was there in the garden. The power of darkness was there, just as he was in another garden in the beginning of human history. But Jesus was not afraid of the devil. He had already gone toe-to-toe with him and told him three times, thus it is written, and Satan had to scram. Jesus knew that the worst Satan could do was to bruise his heel as the seed of the woman. Don't you think it would be a little bit unworthy of the Son of God to let the devil cause him to sweat great drops of blood? Do you think Jesus created somebody that could rebel so powerfully against him? It was all Jesus could do to defeat him? I think not. Well, you say, Pastor, what was the cup? If it was not the dread of death, it was not the fear of dying at the hands of Satan, the cup was the experience of the wrath of God for sin. Why was Jesus shrinking here in the garden? It was the full realization that he was about to be smitten by God in the sinner's place, as Isaiah the prophet had said in that marvelous 53rd chapter. The very prospect of it convulsed his soul. He did not suffer as much physically here as he would in a few hours on the cross. Yes, it was excruciating. He sweat great drops of blood. That's quite an unusual phenomenon. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But Jesus did not suffer as much physically in the garden as he would a few hours later on the cross. But he suffered spiritually. Now he saw clearly what those sufferings would be. And in prospect of it, he asked that the cup be removed. 
That cup that he asked to be removed did not come from Satan. That cup did not come from man. Otherwise, Jesus would have drunk it without any hesitation, knowing that his father would transmute the contents into a distilled blessing. Oh, no. That cup was filled and handed to him by his own father. He literally convulsed. He shuddered at the thought that he was about to become sin for us, for you and for me and for every wicked sinner who ever lived. I'm telling you, that was awful. All hell was distilled in that cup. The cyanide lace Kool-Aid that Jim Jones mixed more than 40 years ago at Jonestown, Guyana, and made over 900 people drink to their death was a tonic compared to what was in that cup for Jesus. And his holy soul, as a sinless man, shrank in horror at the prospect of absorbing the full brunt of God's wrath for sin. No mitigation whatsoever. No dilution in that cup. We need to think about that today. We need to think about that offering often. Let me ask you something. Do you love him for taking your hell for you? In just a few moments when you gaze upon those emblems of his broken body and his gushing blood, will you do so with a fresh realization it was for me that's the heart of the gospel Christ died for us he had no sin of his own I love talking to children about this they can understand this when we get them ready for baptism I ask them did Jesus ever sin no so was he dying for his own sins no Well, whose sins was he dying for? Mine. He died the just for the unjust. Jesus did not die as a criminal like the two on either side of him. He did not die as a victim. He did not die as a martyr. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, died as an atoning sacrifice for sin. And sinners. If you do not see the need for forgiveness from an offended God, then as far as you're concerned, Jesus died in vain. I love what Andrew Murray said about this. Andrew Murray, a great man of God in South Africa years ago, the Dutch Reformed Church, he experienced revival. He said this. It is from the sacrifice of the will in Gethsemane that the sacrifice of the life on Calvary derives its value. Isn't that great? It's from the sacrifice of the will in Gethsemane that the sacrifice of the life on Calvary derives its value. We sang a little while ago, it was for me in the garden he prayed, not my will but thine. I'd love to hear you sing it again. Will you sing it with me, just a cappella? Let's think about what we're singing. It was for me in the garden He prayed not my will but thine 
He had no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. Sing it. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful, is my Savior's love for me. That was an awful cup. But he drank it for you and for me. Secondly, I want you to see the prayer. Verse 42 records what Jesus prayed kneeling down. Some other things are mentioned in the parallel accounts. But we learned that he prayed it three times. The essential prayer here. Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. Let me ask you, was there ever a more pathos-filled prayer ever uttered? Unless it was Jesus' cry from the cross a few hours later, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Here was the divine Christ, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, submitting to his Father's will no matter what it cost him. He did this while disciples slept, while all earthlings in the whole area could have cared less. Only angels looked on in amazement. Finally, the Father let one of those angels come to strengthen him. Notice that request again, if thou be willing Remove this cup. Was Jesus getting cold feet here? Had he changed his mind since he had declared, the Son of Man has come to give his life a ransom for the many, and I have a baptism to be baptized with? How am I straight and how am I pained till it be accomplished? He would say to Peter shortly, the cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink of it? And now was he getting cold feet? The one who had been saying all along, I came to die, was he suddenly saying to his father, I didn't really mean that. It's blasphemous to even suggest that, isn't it? Here's what Jesus was really saying. The full realization of what that cup entailed, the awful reality of being made a curse for sin, plunged his soul into unutterable agony as listen carefully as far as he knew it was the father's will that he should drink that cup but if drinking that cup were not absolutely necessary for the salvation of sinners he pleads God's love and power and requests that the cup be removed from him he is praying for something in regard to which the father's will is not yet clear to him This is the mystery of the hypostatic union, the two natures Jesus had. Again, I beg you, take your shoes off. Be reverent in your minds. Let's draw near with adoring wonder. The sinless Son of God is in convulsions and paroxysms, and He's sweating great drops of blood. Someone has said it this way, Jesus wept with His whole body. 
For many years, theologians thought this expression was just a hyperbole of speech, emphasizing the intensity of Christ's sufferings. But in relatively recent years, medical science has affirmed that in extreme cases of stress, especially men or women that are condemned to execution, it has been documented that what is known as hematidrosis occurs. The blood vessels, the capillaries, actually dilate to the point of rupture through the sweat glands, producing droplets of blood mixed with sweat. Isn't it significant that the only gospel writer that mentions that was the one who was a physician, Luke? The request. Notice the resignation. Nevertheless, not my will but thine be done. That's what kept this prayer from being sinful. What is Jesus saying here? Is this just fatalism? Is he just saying, well, okay then, if it's too late to change anything, just help me make the most of it. Okay, sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. Oh no. Just the opposite. Jesus is saying, I would rather that my human nature, which so much dreads this impending torment, I would rather my human nature be crossed than that God's will should not take place. He delighted in the thought of God's will being done. That's why the words of of Psalm 40 verse 8 are ascribed to Jesus in the book of Hebrews. I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. That this is the true interpretation of Christ's prayer is proven by his prayer the second time, as it is recorded in Matthew 26, verse 42, which says, He went away again the second time and prayed, saying, O my Father, if this cup may not pass away from me except I drink it, thy will be done. And Christ prayed that same prayer the third time, proving that his submission was complete. There was no resistance no struggle. He gave himself completely to do the Father's will. In fact, he now willed what his Father willed. Let's be sure not to take away from this hallowed account anything less than that, because anything less than that would be a dishonoring to God. Where we cannot fully explain and understand, let's just draw near in adoring wonder. The cup, the prayer, but there's something directed to us, the rebuke. Verses 45 and 46, and when he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said unto them, why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. I've said it many times before, don't be too hard on these disciples. They've been through a lot with Jesus already. They were exhausted. They were emotionally drained. They were tired. They were filled with sorrow. But how different were their expressions of it? As Jesus was filled with sorrow, he prayed. While they were filled with sorrow, they slept. When we combine Luke and Matthew's account, we learn that Jesus came back three times to his disciples and found them sleeping every time. 
Finally, he said, sleep on now, take your rest. It was a mild rebuke, but it was a rebuke nonetheless. Why did Jesus rebuke them? And I think we need to take this rebuke personally ourselves. Give me two reasons, and then we'll observe the ordinance together. Why did Jesus rebuke these disciples? First of all, because of what they missed by sleeping. The Bible says Jesus was only a stone's cast, verse 41. He was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast. Peter, James, and John were there. The rest of them were at the entrance of the garden, minus Judas. But they missed his prayer and agony. They missed the angel strengthening him. Why? They were asleep. And Jesus, don't, don't, don't whitewash this. Jesus, as a man, craved their sympathy and fellowship. That's why he, he brought them and said to them, What could you not watch with me one hour? Matthew 26, verse 40. That's what he said to Peter, the leader. I don't believe it's a far-fetched application to say this to all of us. I wonder how many opportunities we miss of entering into the passion of Christ, of laying hold of His highest willingness for His church and for the lost. How many times the life and death issues are at stake in the heavenlies? Satan is making a bid for souls. But we're too tired to pray. We're too tired to agonize. Oh, if somebody were to break into our home in the wee hours of the morning, we'd be ready with our guns for that intruder. But we do not avail ourselves of the weapon of prayer. And when Satan comes, we don't put up much of a fight. The words of the writer to the Hebrews stand as an indictment against most of us. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. But I add quickly, Jesus did. He resisted unto blood. I think of this often since I was a missionary. We support about 150 or so missionaries or missionary organizations, and most of them come through on a furlough. Some have been on the field so long they don't ever take a furlough. But we have their prayer letters out there in the Hall of Faith, and sometimes missionaries come home broken in health, perhaps even in spirit. In many cases, they've been in raw contact with the powers of darkness. Have we been too busy to read their appeals for prayer? They come in on a Wednesday night or a Sunday night, and they know we haven't been praying for them when we ask now, what's your name? Who are you? I wonder if they could ask us, what could you not watch with me one hour. Have you ever asked Jesus for the privilege of watching with Him in prayer? The church is asleep in America. 
we desperately need to shake off our spiritual drowsiness and see what issues are at stake. They didn't realize what they were missing. That's why Jesus rebuked them. They didn't realize what they were missing by sleeping. Secondly, and this is perhaps equally important, if not more so, because they were unprepared for temptation. Jesus said in verse 46, rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. That's why they needed to stop sleeping. He added the word watch in Matthew chapter 26. Watch and pray lest ye enter into temptation. Beloved, when we miss the lesson of Gethsemane and fail to pray with Jesus, we leave ourselves vulnerable to the lies, the deception, the attacks of the devil. Let's face it, we're all tempted every day. We have an old nature that's temptable, don't we? Would you take your Bibles and turn to the familiar passage in James? So let's see the anatomy of sin and temptation. James chapter 1, we'll read these familiar verses again, but I want you to see them. James chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. <clears throat> James nails it here. <clears throat> James 1, verse 13, keep your finger back in Luke chapter 22. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away. That means drawn aside from the path of obedience. You never fall for sin without ceasing to be obedient. Every man is tempted when he is drawn away or drawn aside of his own lust, his own evil desire, and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Wonderful inspired words. We're all temptable. And the Bible says Jesus was tempted. Be careful. Jesus was tempted, but he was tempted in a way opposite from us. It's important for us to understand that, or we'll have a very weak view of Jesus, and we'll think that he can sympathize with us because he knew what it was to struggle with his sin nature. I've heard preachers say this. Let me go on record as saying something so you understand it. I believe in the doctrine of the impeccability of Jesus Christ. Not only did he not sin, he could not sin. You say, well, how could he sympathize with us? I'm glad you asked. I want to finish the message talking about that. First of all, let's go back to that statement, he could not sin. He could not be tempted in the way we are. Because the Bible says, Jesus said in John 14, 30, the prince of this world cometh and hath nothing in me. Who's the prince of this world? Satan. There was nothing on the inside of Jesus that Satan could appeal to. Am I right? There was no ally in his breast like we have. Nothing. He was totally devoted to that which was pure and righteous in every word, thought, and deed. He not only did not sin, he could not sin, yet he was tempted, the Bible says. How? Don't miss this. I guarantee you, the devil wants you to miss this. Some of, it, some of you, it's going to go right, right over your head. 
As difficult as it is for us to understand, Satan was tempting Jesus to cling to holiness instead of being willing to be made sin for us. Just as in the wilderness he had tempted Christ to cling to his rights, saying, you don't have to embrace sin to take your rightful throne. You don't have to die that awful death of shame on the cross. You can have it all now. Or we could put it another way, Satan tempted Jesus to let go of all that he had known, his holiness and purity and intimate fellowship with his Father. What a contrast between the way Jesus is tempted and the way we're tempted. Yes, he was tempted in all points, in all areas, but not exactly the same way we are. We fight to hang on to God. He fought to let go of God. We fight to be joined to God. He fought to be separated from God. We struggle to embrace a righteousness which is alien to us. He struggled to embrace sin which was totally foreign to him. He abandoned all that he'd ever known to embrace all that we sinners, all that we've known. Some of you are looking at me like a calf at a new gate. Uh, get the CD, listen to it again. We need to understand this. This is how he can sympathize with us and help us who are tempted because he himself hath suffered being tempted. Are you beginning to understand what Jesus endured for us even before he reached Calvary? The disciples were unprepared for this onslaught of temptation. But we have no excuse. We have the Word of God. And so as we observe the Lord's table this morning, let's worship and adore and love the God-man who took upon himself our loathsome sin and bore the full brunt of the wrath of God against him. Will you pray with me? Blessed Father, please lead us to follow Jesus into the veils of Gethsemane. Help us to shake off our spiritual drowsiness and watch with him for sin and sinners. Help us to enter into the passion of Christ and understand what's at stake in that battle in the heavenlies for souls. Please speak to that sinner who's experienced no struggle. Maybe they think they're saved, but they have no struggle with sin because they've never received the new nature by being born again. Lord, just take the mask off, I pray. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.